Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Waters Wavelength podcast. My name is Anthony Malakian. I am the U.S. editor of Waters and I'm joined by my co-host James Rundle, the news editor of Waters. Hey everyone. So today we're going to take a look at um, a couple things. Uh, behavioral economics, uh, which is based off of the profile uh, by our U.K. reporter, uh, Tellside uh, Technology Deputy Editor, uh, John Brazier. I uh, did a profile of Cheney Capital COO Josh Jacobson, and a lot of that his exp- Jacobson's experience is built around um, the study of uh, behavioral economics and how they're looking to deploy that at um, Cheney, and then just you know kind of broader trends in the industry. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to look at uh, Mifid two as the FD- FCA has had uh, some kind of announcements. Uh, some uh, what would you call it? Uh, there's a couple of things. Yeah, one, its final policies and how it's going to implement it for two, and uh, also the result of its asset management market review. Okay, so well. we're going to get into that, and James will talk intelligently about that, and I'll just I'll try and ask semi-intelligent questions, but I, I won't have that much to add there. That's cool. We're used to this by now. That's fine. <laughs> Anything UK regulation, whatever. <laughs> um, and then uh, we'll, we're going to close up by uh, talking about MLS, Major League Soccer. Um, you know, since we have James over from London, you know, might as well start talking about American football on 4th of July week. Exactly, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how rubbish it really is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get into all that. Um, what should we start with? Should we go with uh, FCA and yeah, 2? let's talk about the asset management industry and its various problems it's having at the moment. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, the FCA... Um, this has been expected for a couple of years. So it first announced it was going to do a market study think back in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, and it ran a few consultations. Uh, this is the kind of the big ticket item that's kind of this final report, and it's uh, it's maybe not as not as caustic as people thought. Like the tone's quite friendly, but if you read between the lines, it's actually quite savage on the asset management industry. So the UK asset management industry um, is the second largest in the world, uh, behind the US, of course. Um, and what they're saying in this is that. There's not enough disclosure. Um, there are problems with, you know, fee and cost transparency. Um, there are definitely issues with the ancillary industries that go along with asset management. So um, things like the investment advisory and consultancy communities as well. So it had a number of, a package of reforms, should we say, which it wants to put in place. And uh, sure. I think it's um, it's put the fear into quite a few people, actually, I think so. You know, so reading, so what was it, on the June 28th, they had a 114-page report. You wrote about this um, in an article that we'll link, but it's titled, uh, Tech Investment Could Help UK Asset Managers Meet FCA's Calls for Sweeping Changes. So, um, the longest headline in the world. I mean, you know, triple deck. I mean, <laughs> we want to make sure that you know what you're getting into so, yeah. before you click on that story and start reading. We don't not do the clickbait. Right. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not BuzzFeed. So uh, some of the reforms uh, included uh, enhanced transparency requirements for fund managers, practices, consistent standardized disclosure of costs and charges to institutional investors, and the introduction of a single all-in fee, uh, which would include trading costs. So that was part of it. Yep. Um, and then... This one, uh, what was it on? This week, uh, the FCA published its final policy guidelines, correct? Yeah, that was on Monday, I think, on uh, July the 3rd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just burying it. They're like, yeah, no one in the U.S. is going to yeah, care exactly about this. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so clarifying its position on best execution. So it seemed like, in some ways, um, this was a John uh, Brazier piece uh, 
FCA clarifies approach to research on bundling under MIFID II. Much more manageable headline. Expertly edited, you might say, <laughs> by someone in New York who should go nameless. <laughs> Wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> um, and so this introduces additional measures that will exempt firms classified as AIFM, Alternative Investment Fund Managers, from changes to rules related to best execution, mm-hmm. but it widens the scope of investment research rules to collective portfolio managers not just investment firms that are subject to MIFID II. I read those things. I don't have great context or understanding. The articles do explain it, but you know, for people listening in, why don't you talk about what does this mean now going forward? Right, so taking the the first piece and question, the uh, the FCA review, this means there's gonna be a lot of change coming for the way asset management is conducted in the UK. So there will have to be a lot more disclosure to clients around how these costs are calculated, this idea of an all-in fee. Um, where everything's kind of put into one thing so you don't get lots of different charges here and there, like taking little nibbles out of your profits and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. There's going to be a tighter focus on how the performance of a fund is linked to the fees it charges as well. So there's no normal case. I mean, hedge funds and asset management firms, whatever, have the um, the famous 2 and 20 kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. That's not necessarily going to be the case anymore. I think the FCA is going to have much more of a laser focus on, okay, well, you are charging X percentage of this portfolio for your costs, but you're underperforming the benchmark. So what's going on here, guys? Yeah. Um, one of the big things it's doing uh, is saying that there's not enough competition in the advisory and the consultancy space. Um, so they're gonna well, they've made a provisional decision to um, refer consultancy at least to the Competition and Markets Authority for a full investigation. They'll mm-hmm. make a final decision this in September, but that could be a real problem for a lot of the people in that industry. So they try to preempt this by saying, "Oh, we're going to make some changes to how we compete with each other and what we offer." Uh, and the FCA went, "Cool, thanks." We're still going to refer you, so now you have to do all this. <laughs> it's yeah. not just a, you know, it's a suggestion. Um, so a lot of changes to come um, for asset management firms. Definitely a lot of changes. Uh, you know, the headline for that was how tech investment could help them meet the changes. Those were from tech vendors, so take it with a pinch of salt. They, mm-hmm. they all talk about sort of machine. Wait, you're trying to tell me that a tech vendor thinks that they might have a product that can help. Uh, I'm just saying that they are phenomenal salespeople, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but no, they are smart people, obviously. Um, you know. They talk about machine learning and targeted outsourcing. Um, of course, they talk about blockchain and how yeah. that can reduce costs. So the idea being that if you want to bring down costs for the consumer, then technology and investment in it now is your way to do that in the future. Whether you want to actually believe that or not is, I guess, it's your relationship with your vendor. But you know. So it's uh, January third, two thousand eighteen, is when you know Mifid two is supposed to start. You know, th- some of these rules are going to take effect. So six months out, essentially, almost exactly six months yes. out from. In fact, exactly six months it was six timed months. for that. I oh, yeah. So, so yeah. there's going to be one more kind of final decision in September that they're going to pass out more. I guess what's kind of the, the, the timeline that firms well, should expect that from was the just for the, um that was just for the decision whether or not – the final decision, sorry, whether or not to refer the consultants to Competition and Markets okay. Authority. Um, that's kind of the FCA's thing it's doing here. It's kind of on its own timeline. It's sort of separate from MIFID II, although some parts of it are coming in in MIFID II, so the idea of an all-in fee – yeah. Um, for funds using intermediaries is already part of Mifid too. Um, so it does build on that. The main thing for six months' time is what's happening in this um, final policy note it released, uh, where it's talking about sort of its best execution guidelines, its research guidelines, where it really kind of tightens up and clarifies exactly what it expects from firms um, who have been using the old excuse of, oh, it's so vague in the regulation, we can't possibly comply. And the FCA's gone, no, look. If your research is directly related to executing a trade on behalf of a client, you have to follow the rules for paying for it this way. Yeah. 
Um, so it leaves very little um, kind of uh, wriggle room, I guess, is, is what I'd say towards it. Um, however, I mean, the FCA has also said, look, we don't understand that this is a big change for you guys, having to put separate research payment accounts in for everyone, having to put technology in to manage all that. Um, so the FCA is kind of doing what it did with reporting back a few years ago, um, where it's saying, we don't expect everyone to be 100% compliant come January 3rd. And we're not going to come down you like a ton of bricks if you're not, as long as you are actually showing that you're trying to comply. Mm -hmm. So if you're having difficulties with it, talk to us, we'll work with you. Uh, and we won't find you for it. We'll try and make you know, work with you to make it happen. But we are going to come down on you like a ton of bricks if you're just using it as an excuse and not doing anything. So, okay. you know. We've written, we're, we have written already, um, Timbergay's Murray first, and Agalos has written a couple, we, so we had a couple features up on uh, this kind of idea of unbundling and research. Um, and we've, you know, numerous stories here and there. I guess for firms that maybe need to know, are there leading vendors right now? Maybe put you a little bit on the spot here, so I apologize mm -hmm. if, if this is something that you're necessarily uh, up to date on. We, we write about this every week. I mean, um, I think we were saying in an internal meeting the other day, not a day goes by where we don't get a press release in our sure. own box about uh, some survey that people are doing or a research. Just so you know, if you want them sending out, I just send it on to James or to my colleagues in London. So you can just skip the middleman <laughs> there if you like. And you can send it straight to my colleagues in London because it is method, so you can skip me as well. So I'm making your job like blockchain more efficient. Um, so, um, <laughs> this, uh, yeah, there's a couple of vendors who are doing stuff. Like every major, um, I think, buy-side vendor is looking at ways to do this. So I think IHS Market had something out last week um, where they partnered with Deloitte around sort of compliance consultancy. Um, there was also a platform for managing research payment accounts that they announced as well. Um, and I think that there are various other... Um, I think Ez has something as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, most major uh, buy side vendors will have a solution for this in place now. Um, at this point, I suspect if you're not ready to go, then the buy solution is probably going to have to be the way you go to do it because it's six months, as you say. It's, with everything else that's going on with it, it's probably too late to build something. So it's probably worth talking to your consultants or talking to your vendors um, to put something in place now. Or at least sign the contract. So when the FCA says, "Hey guys, what have you done?" Say, so, "Well, we've bought the system, but you know our vendor's been dragging their heels and the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> so you can maybe avoid some fines and possibly some jail time." <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> jail time in the financial services. Come yeah. on, man. Come what, on. what are we talking yeah. about here? We're not all Tom Hayes. So naturally, uh, you know, we're recording this on July fifth. Um, so naturally, we're going to keep on going with the London theme. Our cover story um, for the July issue, which went live uh, today. Um, Wednesday, you'll hear this on Thursday, so whatever, um, is a profile, uh, by, again, by John and looking at Cheney Capital uh, CEO uh, Josh Jacobson. And it you know, talks about his career and it, it hits on many, many different points and what they're doing at Cheney and some of the interesting work that they have about, you know, partnerships uh, with other vendors and some commoditization of some of its platforms, stuff like that. But the, the thread that kind of ties everything all together throughout is his expertise in uh, behavioral economics. And, you know, I had to look up the exact definition, or uh, J John provides the exact definition of it because uh, it all sounds smart, but I didn't know. But right. so it says the study of psychological, social, cognitive, and emotional factors that can determine or at least influence economic related decisions of both individuals and institutions. Um, so people are weird, and that's why the stock market is unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's. I would imagine that this is all built around you know herd mentality, right? Yeah. Rational movement, stuff like that. 
In fact, there's a great line, I think, in, in the profile about how he first got kind of turned onto this by a guy shoving a colleague's nine iron through a yeah. computer monitor <laughs> when a trade went bad. So which, I mean, read the piece. It's worth a read just for yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, you don't get to it, but it's a very good mm-hmm. uh, lead. So uh, Chain uses portfolio intelligence provider Novus uh, for analyzing investment grade bond data, uh, focusing specifically on individual securities rather than overall portfolio. And now they're looking at one for fixed income factor investing, which is becoming a lot more popular. We've written a bunch about that. Um, and they'll look to commoditize that platform once they get it up and running. Um, last year, BNY Mellon launched Asset Strategy View ASV. Uh, analytics platform developed to generate market intelligence around institutional investor allocations and behavior. Um, Altex has been uh, big in the space, uh, has a behavioral analysis tool to judge uh, fund managers' performance, uh, combines data, analytics, proprietor- proprietary behavioral finance insights, network ma- mapping with machine learning and big data. Hits on all the all the key topics that we like talking about here at mm-hmm. Waters. Um, and Pershing has rolled out this uh, platform most recently. Um, you also have Market Psych, which provides personality profiling. I know Thomson Reuters has done some work with them. So this is becoming a little bit more of a space, it would seem, um, that's starting to gain a, li- a little bit of interest from the vendor community as more and more data becomes available to be analyzed. Right. All right, we have all this. How can we improve our trading performance? So we can look at individual securities. We can look at portfolios. We can examine all that. But now, what about our behavioral analysis of our actual uh, traders? To me, I've always wondered the usefulness of this. At the end of the day, trading is a bottom line performance. Are you performing? Are you not performing? Yes, there is certainly good analytics that can be taken to say, here's ways that you can improve or here's where you've gone yeah, wrong. Right. Um, but then at the end of the day, do you, how much effort and uh, cost do you want to kind of put into these systems how much value is getting out of it. I guess the ROI is the interesting thing. I think that, yes, there are more f- vendors getting into the space, but there's not a lot of vendors in the space either mm-hmm. that are specifically targeting this or they're, they're kind of doing their own targeted little thing. So which says to me that there is a general interest there, but it's not this hot spot that people are kind of really coming. Oh, my God. Yeah, we are getting these guys are getting ROI off of this we got to start investing with them, which would create more competition. People say, let's get in that space because money's starting to flow into that space. Yeah. I don't necessarily get the feeling of that. So going away from the, yeah. the cover story itself, looking, I guess, at uh, behavioral economics, what, what kind of your, your takeaway there? Yeah, uh, I kind of agree with you, I guess, um, in most ways. Like behavioral, uh, sorry, behavioral analysis and all the rest of it is, I guess, useful as a way of kind of measuring performance. And as you say, plugging the gaps we say okay well your trading was really strong here but you missed this and you keep missing it's like kind of like editing right so yeah. if you edit a reporter's stories long enough you'll eventually start identifying their consistent weak points where they're consistently getting things wrong and then you can rectify it mm-hmm. so in that sense it's great the wider kind of um predictive capacity of it i guess um so i talk a lot with the uh quant reporter on uh, on risk a girl called faye kilburn a woman sorry called faye kilburn who used to work for Waters and uh, Inside Data Management as well, has a master's degree in astrophysics and knows far more about this than I ever will. And she mm-hmm. was trying to explain to me the day, saying... Yeah, she's, uh, she's kind of smart, whatever. Yeah, she's kind of smart. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I, she's won a couple of our poker tournaments, I, I, so, yeah, yeah you don't, yeah. don't ever play cards <laughs> with her. <laughs> she was the same way in London as well. Um, and she was saying that is the holy grail. Um, for quants, what they do is ultimately all about trying to predict human behavior. And she was explaining in terms of sort of like predictive versus deterministic 
behavior which i didn't really get but mm-hmm. ultimately it came down to the fact that human beings are rational creatures and it's impossible to really analyze their behavior to any systematic extent so if i wake up in the morning and i chose to wear a red shirt i may not have done that based on any particular criteria it might just be the closest thing to hand they picked that rather than the blue shirt and that's kind of what humans are so deeper explanations and deeper investigations of behavioral economics are kind of what quants do and that's their kind of raison d'etre mm-hmm. um i'm not sure that's a question that could ever really be answered if it does then it's maybe a little bit scary for civilization as a whole kind of what people do but um well it's, it's why know. like looking at something like market timing strategies is called a fool's errand because there's no real way of understanding how humans will yeah. all of a sudden you know start making trades and so timing that in the future is is problematic at best um and many people don't do it but you look at somebody like whole investments blair hole believes very much in market timing not only that but because they have um a lot of investment in machine learning ai he believes that that's making it a more viable strategy now maybe somewhere in the middle there's a combination of those two yeah. kind of things i sure. guess yeah i mean like i guess if you're applying on a macro scale kind of like the herd mentality of markets and you can kind of start seeing that but then you have outliers like the trump trade which you know this news is coming in and everything you expect to drive markets down and actually lifted them up and no yeah. one can really explain why like on a huge level yeah you know, today you said it was investor confidence way up right. the market isn't you know doing anything that would signal anything that there should be that but then you've also had a shift from like where it started with tech stocks through to bank stocks which have traditionally yeah. been you know the poor stepchildren of kind of what we're doing so yeah if you can model that kind of behavior, I guess, on a macro level, and then you talk about market timing and when to jump in and when to get out and all the rest of it, then great. And that's definitely beneficial, I think. And, and also the, the broker review and the manager review. The more esoteric aspects, I suspect, will stay as curiosities, especially when it comes to return on investment, unless you're a you know super-duper AI-enabled hedge fund that has six people out in an office in Long Island and you're all MIT grads and you find something in that where you can yeah. you know, do it, then great. But on a wider scale, I'm, I don't know, I'm not so sure. So that's, uh, again, we're talking more in general, uh, but definitely worth checking out John's uh, profile of Josh Jacobson uh, Cheney. Um, you know, some good takeaways there and just some good uh, anecdotes uh, that, yeah. that's strung in throughout there. Um, yeah, we got to talk at least a little bit about something America here. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, happy Fourth America. Is yeah, it? I mean, if we all of a sudden start talking about the EPL, then, you know, it'd be like, come on, man, all, all UK. So we'll talk MLS. We'll talk MLS, yeah. So I go to um, my girlfriend's uncle has season tickets to NYCFC, and so sometimes when oh, he's no not way, using really. stuff, yes, yeah. terrible place to watch a game. Yeah, it's like I've been to the Red Bull ones. He used to have Red Bull season tickets, um, but it's easier for him to get to NYC, so he's just you know, get up to the Bronx as opposed to Jersey. So he switched over to them, and it's. Like trying a, a retrofitted soccer stadium yeah. in a baseball stadium of all places, not like even a football stadium. It's terrible to play on as well because the pitch is so thin. It's kind of like I think it's just within regulation standards yeah. how thin it is. So visiting teams hate playing on it because their passes and their volleys and their you know crosses go wide, and then New York City suffers when it goes elsewhere because it's trained on that pitch, so yeah. everywhere is wider. So again, the same thing happens in reverse. It's and then from an dumb. atmosphere perspective, it's very cavernous sounding. So yeah. I'm, I'm not a big fan. And uh, the Red Bull Stadium there in Harrison is a beautiful place to go. I've I've enjoyed it there, even though there's really nothing there yeah. else. Um, you just kind of get in and get the hell out. Um, but I was surprised. So James actually suggested talking about. Uh, MLS. So I was like, okay, let me go check it out. I've, I've only been to one game early in the season this year, and I don't pay attention to standings, you know, throughout the mm-hmm. season. 
Um, I was surprised he hit there were 22 teams in the league. Yeah. Like, I expected there to be at least a cap on 20 just to say to go in line with the rest of, you know, how every other, you know, country basically does mm-hmm. it, it seems like, in their professional leagues. And then, you know, I was just, like, looking up. At, there's a new team, Atlanta United, I saw. Um, yeah, it's their first season. It's, uh, they're one of the expansion teams. Yeah, Minnesota the, just Minnesota, came in. Yeah. Atlanta are doing well, actually. I think they're fourth at the moment, whereas Minnesota are a bottom of the table on there. Because the well, MLS is split into the Western Conference and the Eastern Conference yeah. for geographical reasons, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Atlanta's doing pretty well. So. It's going to suck to be, like, as you get into September, because I think the season goes through September, October, November even, like, uh, right? Yeah, well, the, the main season stops in October, and then you have the MLS Cup playoffs after yeah. that. So, yeah. Men go to Minnesota. I don't know if that place is domed, if the stadium they have is domed, but that would have yeah, to be an awful right? experience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Vancouver, like, obviously there's a lot of success with, like, uh, Portland and Seattle have a great rivalry, mm-hmm. and it's bitter cold, but everybody up there, I guess, just used to it or whatever, so it's good stuff there, but... What, do, what is your takeaway of MLS? You said rubbish before. I mean, everybody kind of knows that yeah, it's not I mean, on par. But I, I, mean, I think it's, it's developed enormously. Um, so when I first started coming to America regularly um, for work and, and for other reasons, um, it was when New York City was starting start first to be formed. Um, and even in those sort of like three or four years, it's gone leaps and bounds. It's beyond the quality of the players. It's great, especially the homegrown talent as well. It is still, you know, regarded jokingly as Sunday League soccer when you compare mm. it to like the Premier League or you compare sure. it to Serie A. Or it's whatever. a retirement fund for many great for European many players. Great Euro- yeah, exactly. It's where they can live out their dotage in relative yeah. peace, you know, um, and still be heroes. Look at David Villa, for instance, you yeah. know, um, or Fat Frank Lampard, or um, any of the guys who are now managing the teams as well. Um, it has some problems. Um, first of all, I don't think two conferences is enough there needs to be more i think because if you look at any game america is such a huge country there is no traveling support really yeah. pretty much like if new york plays i don't know in chicago you're not going to get many people coming from new york to go to chicago because it's a four-hour flight away right yeah you need to get a life if that's what you if you're if you're, if you're doing that exactly there, yeah yeah and unless you're like a new york transplant or you happen <laughs> like you live there that's all you get so the whole like the match day atmosphere is rubbish because it's just the home team um yeah. And that's also one of the reasons I think why you get these kind of outside scores in games as well, where you like four nil, five nil, that kind of thing. Um, so I think smaller conferences locally, because I mean people might not travel to Chicago, but they might get the Amtrak up to Boston for New mm-hmm. York City you know, to watch a game, um, or down to DC, or even up to sort of you know uh, sort of the northeast of the country. Sure. Um, maybe that's something. And also the second really big problem, and this is a very European perspective, I know, but there's no promotion, there's no relegation. Yeah. So we, you talked about the size of the MLS. There's 22 teams. They're expanding to 28 soon as well, which is great. But for me, it's not a league. You've got 28 teams. If those 28 teams can never leave the MLS, they're always just going to be MLS teams. The Seattle Sounders, you know, Sporting, Kansas City, whatever. Yeah. That's more like a cabal. Like for me, and I understand it's kind of a cultural difference in how American sports work. We have like a major league system and a minor league system. Yeah. Um, that works great in established sports. So like baseball, for instance the American, the quintessential American sport, it doesn't yeah. need development necessarily at grassroots level because it's already there. You can have the Yankees and you can have the Red Sox and all the rest of it and they can be the teams you aspire to the as Houston a Astros. To to. The Houston Astros. Yeah. Which no one talks about. But <laughs> 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 um, and that's great because, you know, the way it works here is uh, you take it as a player and you advance through the minors and then you go through into the majors or if Nick Swisher's case, you get relegated from the majors, get back to the minors and whatever. Yeah. Um, but... Um, 
for a game that's developing in the way that soccer is, I think it's the fastest growing sport in America at the moment, like easily. Been like, that for like, a long time now. For a yeah, long time, so. exactly. Um, part of the thrill and excitement of soccer, uh, and if I mix up soccer and football, just bear in mind I'm talking about the same thing, um, is the idea that you can be a small club from somewhere. And if you put enough work into it, if you put enough investment into that team, yeah. you can get the very top. So I'm, I'm from London, but I spent a lot of my childhood in a place called Bournemouth in the south coast of England. Um, which always had a rubbish football team. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were perpetual relegation, battlers, and all the rest of it. In the last few years, they've gone from the third division of football up to the Premier League, where they're sitting in the middle of the table. And it's only in a sport like soccer can you do that, I think. Yeah. Um, what was it called? Like, Or the opposite, you have Leeds United was one of the storied yeah, franchises, well, right? And Coventry now they're... Coventry City spent 33 yeah. years in the Premiership, and, uh, you know, they went down, I think, about sort of 10 years ago and never came back up again. Yeah. So it happens. But then... In a country like America, where you're trying to encourage the game, you need to do it at a grassroots level, and you need these smaller teams to start coming up through the uh, through the leagues and start sort of gaining support and momentum and investment behind them. At the moment, the way MLS is working, you're trying to encourage a new sport, or relatively new sport, to America, but you're only ever going to encourage it in 28 locations because those are the only teams that can ever be major leagues. So everyone's going to want to play for their academies yeah. when they're younger. Everyone's going to put their investment into these clubs. They're going to have the best stadiums. They're going to have all the infrastructure around it. Um, and you know, that's just an example. You have two of those teams in New York teams, for instance. So yeah. you know, it's where uh, how is Middle America going to compete with that? Or yeah. you know, well, when you California, look at the map so. of where the teams are in like the Northeast, like you said, you have Boston, New York, uh, Jersey, New York, you know, whatever. DC, United, um, DC, yep. Philadelphia, mm-hmm. all crammed in. And then like once you go into the West Coast teams, like they're just spread out across yeah. everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like football soccer will never become a major sport in America for that reason because it won't have that level of general excitement and general grassroots sort of expectation investment so Don Gerber who's the uh, the commissioner for MLS is like well you know Europeans do it this way but we're America god damn it and we do it amazingly is this your story, American so accent right now that's my American accent Jesus right now <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's short sighted this is what I'm saying and you know you can understand the reasons for it people say like you know There'll be no community investment in an MLS team if there's a possibility of being relegated or, you know, people bought into a franchise and they bought an MLS team and it's like, yeah, great, but, like, people buy Premier League teams and they still go down the, the crapper as well. So, I mean, you know. It's always surprised me because, like, in baseball, there's always been this a little bit of a discussion of could you actually have relegation in baseball, which does make things more exciting because mm-hmm. not only are you looking at the top of the table, who's going to be making the playoffs. You know, we, well, over here in the U.S., we have playoffs as opposed to the winner of the league. Um, but then also now you're starting to pay attention to these bottom league teams here in in the Division One and the top division teams in Division Two to see who's going to kind of move around. It creates an added level of excitement. Right. And there's then consequence for bad ownership. So in baseball, my favorite team, the Astros, they famously tanked for just sold every legitimate player they had to mm-hmm. one point where there are three straight hundred loss season teams where there is some discussion of could a triple A team actually beat, you know, some of these uh, yeah. kind of teams. Baseball you'll never it'll never happen in. But it surprised me a sport like soccer that has Soccer fans have an understanding of, if you are an MLS fan, I can't imagine there are too many, I just watched the MLS and I refuse to pay attention to Europe football yeah. or, you know, I can't imagine that that yeah, I'd happens. I'd say the bulk of fans are probably European transports. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, yeah. I mean, that's how it, so they, I, 
they could easily get comfortable with the idea of relegation. Um, and then this expansion, like, hockey always has a problem. Like, hockey could be a better sport if it would just contract teams and have more talent on the ice. Yeah. Open up the rules so, you know, you, you, the more skilled players get to play, contract the team so more talent plays. Either do that or the other idea I've always thought was have 15 teams over here in North America, 15 teams in Europe, and have the winner of those two leagues play each other at the end. And that would be cool to watch, you yeah, know? that'd be awesome. Get up to 28 teams, the skill level here isn't – it's already – like, don't you water it down so much where then a team like UNAM Pumas or I don't know who the top of the ta table is in the Mexican League all of a sudden is going to become a better team than your team simply because you have to field – you know, 15, 20 guys on, I don't know how many guys actually fill out an actually the, the yeah. full roster of an MLS team. It's not enough support for 28 teams, you yeah, know, in there, not. much less 22. And also, it's not fair. One of the things the relegation and promotion would solve counterintuitively is it's fair on the fans as well. Like, you know, one of the big criticisms of American sport, which operates a major league system or like an NFL system or whatever, yeah. um, from Europe anyway, is that... Um, you know, you can have a team based in a city for a hundred years, and then someone can buy that franchise and move it across the country to like the West Coast or whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, and once you start understanding the major league system, you can see why that happens because people want to like own a team and start a franchise or whatever, but they can't do it because it's limited to those teams. So they have to move, you know, the Dodgers from New York to San yeah. Francisco or whatever um, or in baseball. Um, when you have promotion relegation, it starts opening up the options to start new teams, not having to like rip those supporters away from their team and yeah. that kind of thing. I have, so, I you, know. you know, San Antonio or something, for example. All right, screw it. We'll dump a ton of money. If I want a major league soccer team, I can go and buy one of the established teams, cost a little bit, or I can go buy a team in San Antonio or Cleveland or wherever, yeah, and, like and then the just dump money divisions. into that way exactly. and build it up organically. Which has its pros and cons. I mean, like, you know, one of the arguments in UK football is the, the English Premier League is regarded as being one of, if not the best in the world, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but using the example of Bournemouth early, for instance, you know, we had a rich um, foreign investor who came in and dumped a load of money, and suddenly we shot up the table, and that's, yeah. that's uh, you know, a function of the capital that's put into it. It's not necessarily yeah. the skill level. So there is this kind of argument of, oh, okay, if you do introduce something, you're paying to play and all the rest of it like that. But then everyone benefits as a result. I mean, if you look at the youth programs that have come up as a result of Bournemouth reaching the Premier League, the local economy, everything like that has improved because they have become a Premier League team. Yeah. And those benefits will filter into America as well. You have, say, some small town in Arizona that has a really, really good football team yeah. and somehow makes it into like the United Soccer League or the North American Soccer League and then eventually the MLS. I don't see how it's a threat to anything but investors. Really? That seems to me the only thing is investor protection. So people have bought these franchises and want an MLS franchise. It's protecting them. It's not helping the sport, this is necessarily. And the other thing is you already have the infrastructure because there is that tournament, uh, like the F whatever the U.S. version of the FA Cup is, but yeah. where teams from all different divisions, because that's the other thing that might surprise some sports fans, there are soccer divisions that exist now. There is oh, yeah. a second tier, a third tier, and stuff like that. Just recently, I know that, two MLS teams in that tournament got upset by lower division teams. Mm. So you already have that in place. It wouldn't be such a stretch, I don't think. Um, but who the hell knows? I mean, just, you yeah. know, it, it's, 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 it, it is that stubborn Americanness of, we do it our way. We don't need Europe <laughs> to tell us how to do it. It's like, guys, it, it worked there. So maybe just take what this works it, and yeah. just. Well, if you're going to do it, at least let New York City FC have their own stadium, for God's sake. I mean, oh, come God, on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, 
Let's see here. Oh, there is one uh, final announcement here. I wrote it down here somewhere. Um, July 18th in London. Again, going back to London. Uh, <laughs> MIFID 2, uh, What You Need to Know Briefing. Uh, that will be held, held at the Mayfair Ho Hotel in London. Is that a nice hotel? It's, yeah, it's one of the best in London. It ties back to what we're talking about with the research and bundling as well, so it's well worth your time Yeah, if you're interested in that sort of thing to, to go along. And we have some experts there speaking as opposed to uh, Jim and I just rambling on, and exactly. I really contributed nothing to that <laughs> in, anyway. Um, all right, well, uh, thanks for listening in. Um, we'll be back uh, next week. Uh, Jim, anything else? That's it for me. All right, thank you all. Have a good day. Cheers.